Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. And hey, everyone, how are you all? Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you all are getting ready for our upcoming SGS meeting this June in Palm Springs. You know, I haven't flown anywhere in over a year, so this trip is going to feel quite special. Now, speaking of SGS, we have an amazing member on our show today, and that is Dr. Mark Walters. He is the very first endowed chair for SGS and has his own lectureship fund that was established this past year in 2020. The fund will be used to underwrite the travel, lodging, and honorarium of a distinguished speaker for the new Mark Walters lecture for the next 20 years at the SGS annual scientific meeting. Life goals, right? This guy is amazing. He'll kick off his lectureship with a talk this June entitled Insights on Surgical Education, How Can I Help You Get Better? Now, Mark is truly an incredible icon in our field. He is not only a gifted surgeon and educator, but also a mentor and sponsor in the truest way. He retired from the Cleveland Clinic this past year, where he trained over 35 fellows. On part one of our interview today, Mark is going to talk about what he's been up to since his retirement and provide insight into his gift of being a surgical educator. We hope you enjoy. So I am so excited to see Dr. Mark Walters today. I have missed your face so much around Cleveland Clinic. So thank you so much for joining us today on Unscrubbed. How are you? Are you doing well? I'm doing fine. Everything's great. So you, I mean, we used to share this little nook of a corner here, right? Like our offices were right by each other. I'd see your face pop in with your coffee like every day and you say, hey, Kara, what are you doing? Can I come sit down? And it was my favorite part of every day. I miss you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes. So give us a snapshot into your life. What, what, what have you been up to since retirement? With retirement, I mean, if you've been working your whole life, it does present a big, pretty big change. And, and for me, I pretty much just worked for 35 years. And my wife did everything else at home, raised the kids, did all the stuff in the house and everything like that. So now I'm home trying to do things, but I don't have a lot of other skills. So, you know, some doctors have a lot of other skills and they, they're woodworkers or they're, they have some other things they like to do, but I don't really have those things. And, and so you, almost everyone, and when they're getting ready to retire, they tell you to try to develop um, some other activities that are your own. So I try to do that. I mean, I, I read more and I'm trying to exercise every day. And then I develop um, little hobbies. It does, um, in, with COVID and the winter, if you're married and you have a partner, it's nice if you like that person, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> you bring up a good point about liking your partner. Thank God we like our partners, right? That's right. <laughs> well, you know, you probably have heard patients tell you the female patients tell you, oh, my husband just retired. He's driving me crazy. He's around. Even even when they're highly productive, they're home, they're cooking the meals, they're ta- wanting to talk all the time. And my, my wife has her own life. She has activities. She has a lot of friends. And here I am poking around wanting to talk with her and stuff. And so you, you do have to sort of get your own life and activities. And um, that's when you're the happiest. Far as I can tell, 
I do do some medicine work. I'm not going to see patients anymore, but I do some online things, some writing, and I'm still working a little bit with some of the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic on papers that we had. And I'm also working to try to do consumer education online with some other doctor friend and even my daughter who's a, who's into this business as well. So I still have some things that I can do. I could even do more if I wanted to. But, you know, I try to do maybe an hour or two of medicine a day and then read a little bit and then make sure I get some exercise. And then you're already starting to think about what you're going to eat for dinner. (laughs) My days also evolve around food. So I don't think that's going to change. Yeah, so true. But, you know, you bring up a really interesting point in that Retirement for physicians can be really complex because what we do is so integrated into our identity, right? It's who we are. So I'm curious, you know, did you grapple with any of those emotions as retirement got closer? Are you, are you having any of those emotions, you know, of, of letting that go? Or how are you processing all of that right now? I was a little bit worried about giving up surgery because that was really what I was most uh, focused on what my ego was tied around. I like seeing patients a lot, but with COVID coming, we sort of phased out face-to-face for about six months at at the end of my work. And so it became an easier transition because it really, when you're an older doctor, I don't think you usually like having to do Zoom meetings and um, some of the stuff. In fact, Zoom meeting gynecology is almost a little ridiculous if you think about it. Uh, if a woman has heavy bleeding or pain or prolapse or incontinence, a Zoom meeting really is doesn't do any good, right? And so it's limiting. You can, yeah, what you can show on a medicine, camera, but you still need to get a look at her of, of what what's going on with her. So Zoom meeting gynecology and and all the the uh, social distancing that we had to do, I thought was Difficult enough that I was almost glad to be able to stop seeing patients. And it was planned ahead of time before COVID came, but COVID made the transition easier. Now, what I really did notice is is all the colleagues and the young people that I can teach or mentor, and you sort of lose that. And that gets a little bit, I don't want to really say lonely, but it gets a little bit where you kind of miss all that activity around um, in in like um, case conference meetings and stuff like that. That stuff was really fun for me. And so I do miss that, but I don't miss seeing patients really like I thought I would. I I really don't miss surgery as much as I thought either. I thought I would, but you find, I think, as you get older, that surgery becomes a little bit more stressful I have heard this from other surgeons who started to retire, think and retired, is that the surgery got stressful enough that it became a difficult experience or they maybe weren't doing quite as well as they thought they should be doing. And I think that I started knowing, noticing um, the stress of surgery so that now I'm glad that I don't have all that stress of, that comes with operations. Now, having said that, I really did like operating vaginally with fellows is really was fun. That was something that I'm glad that I had the opportunity to do all those years. 
So you have to make your own way. You have to get over what loss of ego that you had tied into your job and develop a, a new type of a life for yourself. And uh, almost every retired person will will tell you that if they, especially if they were in offices. And some of them have a tough time letting that go, right? Even though they have a lot of money, they're still working into their 70s. And so I don't, I don't think that's necessary, assuming that you can afford it and everything. Better to go move on with a new life and do do some new things, work on your body a little bit and maybe travel or whatever you like to do. I love that. And you know, that's actually a, a big discussion that I've seen online is when do you know when you should stop operating? right? Like, how do you know when you should start pulling back? And I recently read that the average retirement age for a physician is 68 years old. The average age of the general population is 63. So we tend to work a little bit longer. And it's interesting having you, hearing you say it became a little bit more stressful. I've heard that from other people as well. What do you, what aspect do you think made it more stressful? And how did you know that it was time for you to pull back surgically? Well, stress is, stress is, is, Internal, right? I mean, so you have the same operations that you did um, for 20 years. But as you get older, you become a little bit more risk averse. I think almost by nature, you don't want to fall down outside in the snow. You know, you drive a little slower, maybe. Um, you're a little less reckless and careless about personal activities. And, and surgery is no different. It's, Surgery, you really don't want to make a mistake and you really don't want to have very many bad outcomes or big complications or anything. But in order to avoid big complications, you have to get conservative. And so what do you do? You either give up the very difficult cases and give them to a younger, aggressive surgeon, or you do them and become tentative and worried about the um, potential for outcome because it's complicated. Even though you've done this before, you're worried about maybe having having something go wrong. And so I think what a lot of doctors do and what, what my teachers did for me is when they get into their 60s, they start doing what's easy for them and then handing off the more complicated stuff or the failures to a younger doctor who number one is building their experience, but also have more, little bit more stronger nerves of steel now. And maybe <laughs> right. they're even reckless, but they seem to be willing to have complications because that's part of their development process. But when you're older, you really don't want to have those complications anymore. I've, I've had those, you know, and in obstetrics, I don't think one extra shoulder dystocia makes that obstetrician better. They don't want to have it ever again because exactly. they, they live through it. So now you don't want that anymore. Where a younger 40-year-old who's a maybe a, a one to become awesome, they're sort of watching for these things to come up so that because they can solve them and it also gives them enough experience to make them better. So I think it's a it's the for me at least and for maybe a lot of people, it was the constant worry about having bad outcomes. And then there, there's another thing that about this, and that is you worry, you worry a little bit that maybe other people will think you're 
not as good as you were. So there is sometimes a concern by some doctors that your perception is that you're not as good as or not as aggressive or not as willing to handle the hard things anymore. And then you might, if you have this thing, feeling that maybe other people are not thinking as highly of you, then that is, that isn't good for you, right? So it affects your ego a little bit. My partners, uh, when Matt Barber and Eric Jalovsik were pretty out, outspoken, and they would tell me that there's plenty of data in surgeons that outcomes level off at 50 and start going down at 50, not at 60 or 65. And Eric uh, was especially confident of his data. And so they would, they would say stuff like that to just razz you. Yeah. Razz me or pimp on me or something like that. And, and, um, so I, we kept looking at our data and it seemed like I was measuring up and I never really did do too much of a downturn. But if I had a, a failure, for example, frequently I did refer it to one of my partners rather than do it again because I had a feeling that, okay, if, if I have a failure, even if there's a 10% failure rate, then I probably shouldn't redo that where I would have in the past. Sometimes I was the only one there. In, I mean, 20 years ago, there wasn't anybody else to refer it to. So I would have to redo it. But then I started letting other people do um, the complicated things or my own failures. And I, I was okay with that right? because that takes away some of the stresses of dealing with problems. You, you know how that's like. When you have a case that doesn't work out or you have a complication, that patient's with you for a long time and it can wear you down a little bit. Very nicely put. And it's interesting that you said the age of 50, that seems so young. And especially in the world of physicians and surgeons, we don't start our career really until mid-30s, right? We're not like most professions that we can start our career early, right? So we kind of have a short lifespan in the OR. Well, no, I mean, I've been doing it for 35 years, but... 50 sounds pretty early, right? I that's agree. young. That's, that's, what, that's what Dave, Eric said, the data said. In other people in our department, some of the oncologists, right around 65, they start wearing down a little bit. They might keep working, but they would say maybe their hand-eye wasn't as good or their eyes aren't quite as sharp or their energy mm-hmm. level isn't quite as good to do three cases rather than two. And And there's just right. certain things that the change in your body that you just can't make up for. And it's no different from uh, from playing sports or anything. Your your performance from a physical and hand-eye uh, perspective is just not as good when you're 60 as when you're 40. There's no ways around that. And even, even from 30 to 40, your performance in your body isn't as good but but in, with physicians, you're gathering your experience. And that's what I think surgeons, you can be intellectually super smart at 32 or 34, but you need surgical experience. And that takes probably 10 years. And then after 10 years, you start to click for you a little bit. You see the anatomy better and um, your hand skills, I think, lock in. You don't really necessarily get better from a hand skill perspective. You maybe can learn new things new technologies, but your hands sort of lock in. But I think you start seeing things, you know, you, you notice that maybe uh, you're a little too close to the ureter because you've been close to the ureter before. But until you 
until you did it, you didn't know you were close to the order. So you start to see the process and you, probably you, things are starting to click now. You're eight, 10, 12 years out and, and you see the anatomy better and you say, well, I've done this before. I got too close to the rectum. Now I know how to stay a little closer to the uterus or cervix or whatever. And, and that's when I think your peak is, is maybe 40 to 50, 40 to 55. You're so right. It's that wisdom. And that wisdom, you know, you can try to learn it by watching or reviewing videos and all those things, but you, you really need to get in there and just be high volume and do those cases to know what works and what doesn't work, right? That's right. found, you know, you are an amazing surgical educator, so many awards, so many teaching awards. And really what I found is that the more comfortable you are in the OR, you can get your learners out of things that may happen as well. And so the sweet spot that I have found, you're absolutely right. I'm eight years out now, I think. And I'm really in a sweet spot where I feel like you can let your learners have a little bit more autonomy too. And if they get themselves into trouble, you can get them out. Did you find that as well? That's right. So you want to and, and this is this is touchy. Some surgeons, if the learner is going down the wrong path or starting to get in trouble, some surgeons want to take it and fix that. But uh, if you can, if you have nerves that can handle that, you sort of give them a little more time to fix their own problem. And if you're, I think, a really good educator, you can teach them how to fix their own problem. But they have to have the skills to do this. So once in a while, let's say you're with a second-year resident, and they're doing, for me, a vaginal hysterectomy, and maybe it's a fibroid case or something like that. It's a little bit above what they're able to do because they've only done eight vaginal hysterectomies. Well, I don't want to take that case away from her, but sometimes she isn't ready for that. So that's the educator. You have to decide what she's ready for. And then try to let her follow it through. Don't replace her too soon. And most of the time, if you have patience, even if it takes a little longer, you can go ahead and do that. Now, with more advanced learners, like say if say a good fellow, and they're getting too close to the ureter or the middle sacral vessels or something like that, you can warn them and teach them but you don't want to let them cut the ureter. You want to keep them short of cutting the ureter, but make sure they know right where it is and try to keep them out of that problem. Now, if they still had a complication, like say cut a ureter right in front of you, that's your fault, not their fault. So I would, I would ask people that are listening to this, if you're teaching, don't be that teacher that blames your learners, okay? Because really that's your fault. You let them do that in a teaching setting. Now it's your job to solve that. And if you're also a very skilled educator, you can let them solve the problem. Like they'll, they'll, if you do your own ureter surgery, you would take them through that complication because that's what they need rather than take over and um, give, them, give them a hard time for some reason. So I always hardly ever blame anybody for a problem that they had. I blame myself. And but it's better not to have too many problems, right? <laughs> yes, for everyone involved. Yes, you're in a place agreed. like the Cleveland Clinic, you get a lot of hard cases, and you get cases that other doctors 
have either tried and failed or I weren't willing to try. And so you have to go ahead and do these hard cases in a teaching setting, which is doubly hard. But then that maybe if you're good enough, you can teach your learners to get better, still do a nice job on the case. I'm, I'm going to confide with you. I think that towards the end, I was a better teacher than I was even maybe a surgeon. Because if you're giving over a time, over 20 years, if you're pretty much giving your cases to learners, you become almost, almost a professional surgical educator more than a professional surgeon. It's a, it's a subtle thing. And, and you know, you're, you would tell patients that you're part of a team. And it was, it was a two person team. And in the vagina on vaginal surgeries, you need two people anyway. Even when I was 35, I was turning down the cases, giving them to the residents. And, um, that, that, um, over really several thousand cases, you start to get the hang of it, right? I hope so. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You should by then, right? (laughs) Or you may be in the wrong field. I know. So, so many things I want to pick out of that. That, that, was, that was so brilliant. So, so you mentioned, right, at the Cleveland Clinic, we typically only get the hardest of the hard cases. And you're exactly spot on in that it can be hard to incorporate a learner when the case is already wicked hard. And when you teach, there's, there's a sweet spot for education, right? If it's too easy, they oftentimes won't learn too much. If it's too hard or you're being too harsh, learners oftentimes shut down in that space as well. How did you how did you gauge this sweet spot where you're challenging your residents or fellows enough that they're being challenged, but it's not too hard so they're shutting down or not too easy so they're not so they're not learning? Is there how, how did you gauge that in the OR quickly? Okay, well, for me, I would we I always had fellows pretty much since I've been at the Cleveland Clinic, and it used to be a one year fellowship incorporated with oncology, so they were good operators after six months. And then it was a two-year fellowship with minimally invasive surgery. And then it was a three-year fellowship with an extra year of research. And so you try to tailor the case to the fellow a little bit. If if you have regular cases, you know, for me, vaginal surgery, primary cases, even as big prolapse, but if sort of primary stuff, well, then you can go with a chief resident or a first-year fellow or a second-year fellow, depending on what their experience is. And you sort of know how good they are by the number of cases they've done and also their their hand skills from we get a good look at it almost right away. And so not everybody is is awesome after two months, right? But most everybody's pretty good after a year or a year and a half. Now, if the case is a much harder case, a, a redo prolapse case, a laparoscopic sacral cobopexy, maybe a hard sacrospinous or redo of some sort. Um, then you might, from the beginning, try to get a second or third year fellow and teach them the hard case. Now, if the case was too easy, if not too easy, but if the case was easy for the surgeon, well, then we just enjoy our time there. We operate, right? Operate, you get done. You try to maybe work on your speed a little bit. Um, maybe try to give them a little caveat about, well, when you're taking out this ovary, make sure that you um, don't let the pedicle retract and to give them little tips so that they learn something from that case. But also there's, 
you improve with repetition. And so I don't mind doing the same kind of case over and over again because I think you improve with repetition. Now, if the case is very hard, for me, it would be like maybe a, a mesh removal when we were doing prolift, so taking a prolift out or something like this. It, this is hard. You just you just get your head in the game. And if you were in my operating room, I'm, I, be, I have a hearing problem, and so I need the room quiet. And I don't like a lot of distractions or clowning around or music. And I would tell them, let's let's cut the the chatter and just operate. And then after a while, then they they know what I want. Let's just operate. We can enjoy our time afterwards. So you get you have two people really focused on a on a hard problem. Then usually you can accomplish that. If if you have a complication, then well then it was just the nature of that operation that you're going to have some complications. But it wasn't meant that you didn't have the skill and you didn't try. Sometimes if it's a tough complication, you bring a consultant and a urologist or a colorectal, and then they even teach you something that you could have done to avoid that complication. Since I'm a gynecologist, I can still learn things. Well, then you learn from that. You get the consultant in to help you with to fix the problem. And then the patient hopefully has a better outcome and everybody learns from that. And that's part of the fellowship process. And also sometimes I would learn from that too. And so I don't, I don't think, um, and the only time I would ever get mad was if I thought that people was goofing around too much and, or maybe I was just in a bad mood that day, but I tried to avoid that. If I was in a bad mood, it was, the fellows usually knew I just went quiet and my head was in a bad mood, but I didn't really um, <laughs> verbalize. Yeah, I didn't verbalize. There wasn't any point in that. So then once I went quiet, they went quiet and we just did the case. And and that was good by me. Do the case and let's move on. And if there's a, a lot of noise in the room, I think you're distracted. And some people can operate that way, but but it wasn't my style. Yeah. Setting expectations early. I mean, the OR is our temple, right? Like as a surgeon, we have to make that temple safe for the patient and efficient and all those things. Well, that's what I think. I think you have to, you know, in your case, the I always really liked the, the timeout that we did when that was proven that a timeout can reduce errors. And I really think that was smart. That forced the surgeon to focus before the case because a lot of times they're running in Maybe they're running in out of traffic and, and maybe they're not in the game yet. Their, their mind isn't focused. It forces them to focus a little. And then the checklist at the end, I always did that mentally anyway. Did I get the pathology specimen over there correctly? Did we, did I make sure the counts were correct? Did I really do everything I told her I was going to do? You know, because there's certain things you can have errors in like, one of my mentors, a pretty famous guy, when I was like, uh, you know, two years out, he did a hysterectomy on a woman and then just without thinking too much about it on a fibroid case, did a TAH BSO. He was an oncologist and it wasn't a big deal to those guys then. But it, routine. But then she didn't want her ovaries out and she told him that, but he wasn't paying attention. And so... That we that was an error that you probably wouldn't make today, but it, it's an error of not paying attention and not 
expressly knowing what the woman wants. Once you make that mistake, you can't reverse it, right? And so I would I would focus pretty hard before I walked out of the room. Sometimes when I'm walking over to change my clothes or something, I would go through the case. Am I positive I didn't leave a sponge in? Am I positive mm-hmm. I did all the things that I told her I was going to do? And and then usually you go home feeling good then. I don't want to go home worried that I maybe didn't do something that I should have done. Or maybe it was kind of dry, but still oozing. And I, I want to go home if I think it it might not be totally dry, right? So I try to stick around to make sure that I was comfortable with that. And then I could go and feel okay about it. You sleep better at night, right? I always say that. I need to sleep tonight. That needs to be dry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you bring up really great points again in that we're human, right? Like sometimes we're not having a great day. Sometimes we walk in the OR and we're, we're not in a great mood, right? We're human. And I think sometimes just calling that out can, can just, it, it can feel good to the whole room sometimes. Don't you think? That's right. Well, you know, we focus as a teacher, sometimes if the resident isn't having a good day, you give them a hard time. You're not in this, in this, you need to focus a little bit more, but it, it goes with us too. I mean, sometimes we're not having a good day. Maybe, uh, you know, there's some issues with uh, one of your kids is sick or, you know, who knows? It could be any of a number of things. And if you, and you're not paying attention. And, and so I try, you try to get into the OR and clear all that stuff out. Don't need to really talk about it that much. Just sort of do your case, focus hard, and try not to take any frustration you have out on your learners and and that makes for a better learning experience for them right and that is all for this episode of gynecologic surgeons unscrubbed join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives from all of us at the society of gynecologic surgeons thanks for listening